Hey, Recruit for the Culture family, I am so excited as we have uh, the illustrious Ty Dixon here with us. Ty, what's going on? Hi, it's so nice to be with you today. Cool, awesome. Yeah, just we were so, so excited to have you. Uh, glad that you, you took up the call. And um, just for our listeners, just so you have an idea, uh, we met Ty back in October 2018. And so as Recruit for the Culture was just getting off the ground, we, we hosted a panel discussion on leveling up, right? How can people of color and the specifically when they, within the talent acquisition space, how can we level up and kind of move from core individual contributor to leadership? And I'm telling you on that panel, Ty like lit that thing on fire. And so, I mean, um, you had some amens from, from the audience and the crowd. Uh, it was, it was crazy. And so, uh, that was pre, um, kind of recordings and content. Right. And so that was also pre COVID. And so, um, we are, we are so excited to have you, you back here, Ty, uh, to speak with us, um, about a timely and, and very critical, um, uh, you know, just topic of DE&I, right? And so if you don't mind, just for our listeners, if you could introduce yourself, tell us a little bit about your background and, and kind of who you are and what you do. Of course. So again, I'm Ty Dixon Darden. Um, I am based in Silver Spring, Maryland. I'm originally from Philadelphia, which always feels really relevant to my intro. Uh, graduated Spelman College, uh, started my career off as a teacher. And then during the course of that career, became an attorney. Uh, a leader in fundraising um, and nonprofit management uh, recruitment um, and thinking about talent acquisition and inclusive talent practice, and then um, a national leader in policy and advocacy, and most recently as a chief talent diversity and inclusion officer. So I have I've done the full gambit of how you look at people's experiences inside organizations um, and how we look at this broader conversation about what's needed to really be the workplaces that the folks that are looking to, to add their leadership and skills to, to different workplaces need to see, right? How do we really evolve ourselves to be competitive in this world? So um, I've, I've learned a lot. I'm excited to share it now as a coach and a consultant. So I spent half my time as a workplace culture consultant with organizations, and the other half as an executive coach, helping people break through challenges in their leadership. And then I'm also a professor at Howard University School of Law. HU, okay. Cool, cool. Yo, quick question um, for you. And yeah, thank you again. I told y'all she's illustrious. She's, she's dope. She's ill. You can tell. And so um, quick question for you, Ty. You spent some time, I, I guess you left practicing law and then, and then went into talent acquisition within nonprofit, right? I um, left talk- practicing law yeah. into fundraising first. So I was managing okay. a team at TFA Baltimore first. Got it. Got it. Okay, cool. Um, talk to us about like, um, yeah, just, just that transition. And then also the, the kind of evolution or transition from the talent acquisition space to um, specifically kind of your core work nowadays within the DEI space. Sure. Yeah. So my career transitions have been interesting. I think I always tell people I've been coaching myself throughout this. Um, what is the next question your career really needs to answer? Um, is the question that I ask myself at each turn. And so for me, you know, going to law school was the culmination of a dream, right? I always wanted to do that. Even after having joined Teach for America and been a teacher, I said, you know, a lawyer is what I want to do. And that came from a couple of things. One, my father was a lawyer. 
But second, because my skill set was reading, thinking, speaking, and writing. And when you do that really well, people say that you should be a lawyer, right? So it's a, a funnel that you kind of get pushed down when you have that uh, verbal and written communication skill set. Um, now that I know what I know now, if I'd asked more questions of that advice, right, I probably would have taken myself down a different path. But at the time, I wanted to do the most flexible things that allowed my skill set to thrive. So I went to law school, practiced, and said to myself, wow, if I want to be good at anything in the world, it probably isn't this for the rest of my life. It was very... Um, very driven around, focus on your office, focus on the things that you're driving inside your office, creating and writing, um, all of this uh, reading stacks of cases every night. I found my skill set to be a people skill set, right? I wanted to be building relationships. I wanted to be helping people understand concepts they didn't understand, think about the world differently, think about their lives differently, thinking about their impact differently. And for me, that was difficult to find in the law. So I that transition was... Uh, a powerful one because it was during the economic downturn of, guess what, 2007 is when I started yeah. practicing, 2008, the economy okay. became tough for lawyers. And so there was really no place to go, right? I'm, I'm in a law firm practicing litigation um, and there were not a lot of opportunities for lawyers to change into. And so within that opportunity to, to be in that role, I had to figure out how to explore new passions while I was still in the role I was in, right? So I started doing a bunch of things from the law firm, managing the summer associate program. I co-founded a, a, a mentorship program at a local high school with another attorney, started teaching at Howard Law School, co-teaching with my professor who taught appellate advocacy to me, who asked me to come back and return as a co-teacher with him. Um, I started raising money for the College Bound Lawyers campaign, right? I started doing all these things inside the law firm to create the fulfillment that I really needed, which is I wanted to build programs that made people's lives better, right? Um, and when I saw the opportunity to transition to TFA and fundraising, I saw the opportunity to really take my skill set as a lawyer, this reading, thinking, speaking, and writing skill set, and say, wow, I could actually use that to advance the nonprofit that made a significant difference in my life, which was Teach for America, uh, because it brought me into teaching, because it brought me into thinking of the social justice and equity aspects of teaching. How could I bring this work to more people by helping to raise money to support it in the Baltimore area? So that was a transferable skill set to writing proposals, to managing a team, because I've been managing inside the law firm, not only my cases, but the programs that we helped to create. Um, so that's how I made that transition. You also asked for the second transition into talent. Um, so a couple of years into fundraising, I realized, wow, I was right about one thing. This uh, legal skill set does transition well into things in the nonprofit world. However, I wanna build relationships around a different thing, right? So it was great to engage those who wanted to invest in Teach for America's work. But what would be greater is helping people who wanna change their careers like I have, right? Mm -hmm. I, I really okay. found myself talking more about the story of transitioning from being a lawyer to being in nonprofit management than I was, you know, talking about why you should give money. Um, I, and I found more joy in that, right? I found I was moonlighting as a talent recruiter for Teach for America because I was on the phone with folks telling them why the transition that I made was such a powerful one. And so when I realized that the thing I was doing in my spare time was available as full-time work, I said, why not, you know, move into to talent acquisition and helping people think about how they make these career transitions themselves. 
Wonderful, wonderful, cool. No, I love hearing about just the evolution and the growth and and how those moves are made. So that's no, that's really cool. And yeah, definitely the skill set was was super transferable, right? Um, so so now um, today you you do a ton of work um, in in your consulting practice within diversity, equity, and inclusion, uh, really known as an expert. Um, helping organizations and individuals think about justice, right? And, and equality um, in the workforce. And so, yeah, talk to us about, um, I think the importance of this work of DE&I, and then um, why is this so critical for companies to get right? Absolutely. So, um, you know, the work is the work that we've been trying to do for years, right? But what has happened over these years is we only focus on the D, the diversity piece, right? So I think all through you know, my schooling, all through the early parts of my career in the 90s and early 2000s when I was going through school and then um, uh, starting to build my own career, we were having this conversation about how we bring in more leaders of color, right? But that's where the conversation stopped. So at every organization that I would look at, where everybody I would talk to, we were having the same kind of clog in the system, which is, yes, we figured out how to reach out to and bring in more leaders of color. And what happens is they're not having the same experiences as uh, those who are white in our organizations and they're not staying. And so therefore, because they're not staying where they're not rising at the same level into the rates of leadership, right? So this is what we're seeing. Um, and so no one interrogated that with any seriousness for some time, right? And then when we started to interrogate it, people backed up because they were like, this is too hard, right? Yeah. The stuff that you're saying, we've got to change in order to support better retention and better you know, leadership, uh, rising to the levels of leadership inside the organization, it means we have to change the entire way we've operated, the entire way we've learned um, to, to manage and do performance management. And that just feels like so much work. When are we gonna find the time to do this work, right? Um, and so people would see now, okay, you're asking for a lot of change, but then they back up from it. They recoil from it because that change was just so much infrastructure and mindset shifting that people couldn't even figure out where to begin. Um, and so the most important thing for me right now is that that work doesn't feel so inaccessible for folks. And it's the people see the imperative of what it looks like to change our organizations to make space for equity and inclusion to truly exist, right? We figured out how to make space for diversity, but we kept doing things that we, this, maintaining the status quo, doing things the same way we were doing them before. And we mm -hmm. find that that doesn't retain and promote and create equity inside the experiences that people are having in our organization. So the big question to answer right now is what does and how do we stop this recoiling from the difficulty of what makes change into a breaking it down into parts that we can digest, breaking it down into what we can allocate resources toward and actually moving forward incrementally so that we make long-term change, right? Mm -hmm. How do we make this process doable instead of everybody shut down and go back to the way things were before? Yeah. Got it. Got it. Got it. No, that's wonderful. Wonderful. Um, what about, so, so companies uh, are, are, some are, many, many companies are struggling with what we're discussing, right? Thinking um, very um, uh, kind of siloed in terms of, okay, how do we just look at diversity, not really looking at equality and especially inclusion, right? And so uh, I always try to tell people diversity um, isn't really the, the main goal but but inclusion and equity is right so so kind of same voice uh you know at the same tables um doing great work together and, and just thriving together 
um, we got to also remember that that plantations were in essence diverse, mm-hmm. right? But they weren't equitable. They they were there was no justice there, right? And so, um, yeah, I, I love what you what you mentioned about how we have to take further steps. What about I guess um, uh, maybe you know talk to the person or what would you say to to the individual who is still not sure why this is critical work for their company to be engaged in today? Sure, sure. So. I guess the easiest way to explain that is we carry things with us that we think are normal that are really biased, right? (laughs) We carry things with us, every one of us, right? So we have to look at both the folks who uh, identify as white in organizations and those like me who have, who identify as a person of color, identify as an African-American woman, but I was very successful in white-led organizations as well, right? What do we have in common? That we have to figure out a system of advancement and success that, that works for some and doesn't work for others, right? If we have inherently been successful inside organizations, we figured that system out, right? We figured out how to advance despite those challenges. Mm-hmm. But we have to remember that even though some people make it through the cracks, that doesn't mean there's not a barrier, right? <laughs> and I think that's the conversation we've been having for so long. Well, there can't be a barrier if people like Ty, if people like Larry can make it to these levels of organizations, how can there be a barrier? right? And we have to make that conversation a more sophisticated one, right? There is a barrier. There is a barrier that I made it through because I figured out how to navigate a lot of systems and practices that were necessary in order to do that. I had some people whispering in my ear saying, these are the unwritten rules. I had somebody, you know, promoting and deciding that I had a unique skill set that was worthy of being heard. I got some great opportunities and some lucky breaks, but I also had a lot of credentials, right? I had a lot of things that I had to bring in the door in order to get those opportunities, right? That doesn't mean, those credentials didn't mean that I'm the only person who could have done the things that I did, right? But they were gatekeepers and they helped me to open those doors. The question that we've got to ask ourselves is are we putting these arbitrary gates in front of people where they don't belong, right? Are we limiting ourselves from seeing the true leadership capability of those who would come to our organizations or who are already there? because we are hung up on these biases that we carry, that this person has to hold this level of degrees, has to present things in this way, has to do things in the way that we do them, right? Has to have this sort of culture fit, which is like something, a cringy term in, um, in, in recruitment, right? Yeah. We're hiring for culture fit. So we're hiring for people who feel like the people who already work here. What, is, what does that really mean, right? Um, and if we do those things, what are we actually taking away from our organization, our company, what are we taking away in terms of its power and its possibility, right? Mm-hmm. We need to learn to interrogate that. And we need to learn to, to understand how privilege has played a role in the opportunities we've had. Um, and if we want to make these opportunities available to more people so that we can benefit from the brilliance of their leadership, we've got to understand the ways that we dismantle these, these traditional notions of privilege and power to give people opportunities to advance and thrive within our organizations without this bias being the king of, of how they have to navigate, right? So we've got to think about these things and learn how to pick them apart. And those in power have got to be responsible for it. It mm-hmm. cannot be only a bottom-up effort, right? It's got to be an effort happening across an organization. Got it, got it. Yeah, no, definitely. Leadership is is the, really the key to this, right? Um, yeah. No, no, good word for us. Good word. Okay. Uh, transitioning really briefly um, to, to a sobering topic, uh, one that you and I discussed just briefly, uh, and it's really uh, the summer of 2020 uh, has changed the world, has changed a lot of our lives. 
um, in the way that we view uh, injustices, right, uh, here in the U.S. And, and abroad and individually and corporately. So we had the, the killings of George Floyd and uh, Breonna Taylor. Um, I went to uh, undergrad in, in Louisville, so that, that's relatively close to, to, to me. Uh, and then, you know, Ahmaud Aubrey in, in a list, a string of others, right? And so um, how has the summer of 2020 impacted you and, um, and your work? Absolutely. So, I mean, like so many, I've been going through every level of emotion and grief and frustration and eye-opening reflection in the summer of 2020 and beyond, um, ways that we figure out how to hold on to hope in situations that just keep seem to piling on top of one another, right? They keep, they keep seeming to be more and more insurmountable. Um, I've taken a lot of, of hope and shelter in my work, right? I, I feel like that I'm, I'm doing the thing that is going to make a difference in how people experience their ability to show up and experience less of this over time, right? Less of this systemic oppression, less of this uh, institutional bias, less of this interpersonal inability to have difficult conversations that will advance us, right? Mm -hmm. So much of, of what's happening and the practices that we have become very used to in America as it relates to policing, as it relates to violence, and as it relates to how we treat people in communities of color um, is not separate. It's not a separate world to the one that we enter and work in every day. And so I've really learned how to really help people navigate the intersection of those worlds. In the beginning of the summer of 2020, my clients were asking me, what does what's going on out there have to do with what's going on in here? <laughs> you know, um, we are not, you know, the police. And what it helped me to see is the importance of really dismantling the historical underpinnings of how we got to this place of, of relationship with one another, trust and challenge and, and the, the inequities that have existed for so long and how they make it into our systems and structures, right? And then how we perpetuate them such that even if we can say that we are not the, the people who historically did X, mm -hmm. we are equally as complicit if we are the people who currently uphold Y, right? How do we see ourselves in the history and in the entire tapestry of how our community and our world is relating to each other is really the key to this work being able to happen in ways that shifts hearts and minds and behavior, right? If the goal to have people have better experiences inside the workplace is that individual people start behaving differently to one another and making decisions with different stuff in mind, then something has to happen almost to the scale of the summer of 2020 that opens us all up collectively and makes us pause before we act, right? Yeah. How does this live in me is the question. How does this live in me? And that's the question I brought to my clients. That's the question I've, I've brought to myself, right? Um, what have I internalized? What am I perpetuating? What am I upholding? What is my role to dismantle? What are the tools? How do I make them less intimidating so that people can use them and make the changes that are going to make that long-term difference? But it's going to take more than just me, right? And it's going to take more than just one workplace. And it's going to take more than just a couple of individuals inside workplaces to do it. It has to be a revolution into how we work and how we engage with one another and how we engage with one another in the world, right? But I just feel like if you work on that in your corner, <laughs> right? I've always been one of those people. If, I, if I'm doing what I need to be doing in my corner, um, then I'm having a ripple effect, right? So that's mm -hmm. what I've been focused on since the summer of 2020. How can I have that ripple effect and make the most change possible? 
Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. Beautiful. Okay, cool. Cool. And so um, brings us to another uh, core core topic. Uh, tomorrow is, is June 19th, um, also known as, as Juneteenth. And as of yesterday, as you and I were discussing uh, a few minutes ago, um, it, it's become a federal holiday. Right. And so um, uh, that that seems to be a very kind of important move. And then also some companies are putting on a variety of different programs to educate their workforces um, in various communities on the, the significance of this day. Um, some companies are just kind of proceeding as if it's not really a thing. And so, um, yeah, I wanted to come to you and, and first help us think through, you know, what is, what is Juneteenth, right? Uh, what is Juneteenth? Um, and then why is Juneteenth important for us here in corporate America? Oh, gosh, I, I love this conversation that's happening about Juneteenth right now. Um, I'm a person who, you know, appreciates progress and can also say where it needs to continue to happen at a much faster pace in order to make a real long term difference. Right. So there's so much in the conversation around Juneteenth that is very polarizing right now. Um, I don't feel at one extreme side of that, right? I feel like we've got to make progress. We've got to push for things to be recognized. Juneteenth is an important uh, moment that has been an important moment in my life, but it's also a painful moment, right? Because what we're really talking about when we talk about Juneteenth is that there, the law has outlawed slavery and there is a group of slaves who are unaware of that and are still being treated as slaves when it's illegal in their country. For me, the most important conversation that can arise from that is where does that still exist? So we have all of this law that has outlawed, outlawed discrimination based on race, based on people who are in statutorily protected classes, right? It is illegal to discriminate against people based on race or people who are in statutorily protected classes. And so what we have done as a country and culture and a set of systems is create a whole bunch of workarounds to still discriminate against people based on race and those who are in statutorily protected classes. So the significance of Juneteenth to me and the, the, this, this kind of coming together of these two polarizing positions, which is that giving it as a holiday is performative or giving it as a holiday is absolutely necessary is yeah, give it as a holiday, but then give me the rest of the work that dismantles the systems of oppression that are still holding the truth that upheld Juneteenth as a possibility, which is that people in Texas were still enslaved when slavery was not legal. Let's, let's talk about how we dismantle that in other aspects of our world. Where are we creating places where information has not reached? Where are we creating places where the law says we can't do something, but our practices are still allowing us to do it, right? Mm -hmm. And where have we created norms and workarounds that say, okay, I can't discriminate against you based on race, but what I can do is make it harder for you adva to advance. I can make it harder for you to access wealth. I can make it harder for you to access leadership. I can scapegoat you. I can give you a leadership position that has a high risk of failure. And when you fail, blame the entire failure of an organization on you, right? There are so many things that I can do. Um, I can take your, your status as a parent and use it against you and say, you can't work as hard. I can take your, your uh, sexuality or your gender identity and use it as a way of othering you and not make accommodations inside the workplace to support you, right? All these conversations that we're having about workplace culture is just another ripple effect of Juneteenth, which is we have a practice in this country of making something illegal and figuring out a way that we can work around and do it anyway. And until we start dealing with those workarounds, all of our actions will be performative, right? That's where we're gonna be. We're gonna be in this land of, oh, okay, you're protected by the law, 
but you're not going to be protected in our day-to-day practices. You're still going to experience harm. Mm -hmm. So for me, I just wish we could shift the conversation to that, right? Stop telling people that what they're doing is not enough and tell them what would be enough and actually push for those things to happen, right? So I'm not, I don't want to set progress back. We've got it as a holiday. Great, great. Now what else? Now what else? Now how are you really going to, and I gave you the analogy earlier, which I'll repeat again, right? Um, you know, it's like when we say we take a step to something, but the step is not enough. I tell you, if I take a step out of my front door and I say, I'm going to the gym, right? I haven't lost 20 pounds by the time I take that step. And so I think it's the same thing with Juneteenth. It's the step outside your front door, right? You're closer to the gym than you were when you were inside, but you haven't lost 20 pounds yet. What's going to happen is you've got to make it all the way to that gym consistently. you got to get on that bike. you got to take those classes. And over time, that 20 pounds is going to come off. Mm-hmm. So for me, Juneteenth, step outside the door, you know, starting changing policies and practices is getting in my car, you know, getting through the door, seeing those policies and practices allow more people to break through these ceilings that have been holding them in place. That's another step through the door. And then sustaining it over time through accountability and checking whether it's working. That's my 20 pounds over time, right? So let's not have an either or discussion, right? Let's talk about what it's actually going to take to advance it in real ways while we still take the step out the door. Mm, good God almighty. I told, see family, I told y'all she, she would, would bring the truth and some fire. Um, let me double back on something really quick. Um, many of our, our listeners are probably within the DNI space. Um, and, uh, some are, are, I'm sure just tired, discouraged. Um, they're kind of getting pulled in, in a multitude of different directions. As, as we discuss, it's like, yeah, they got people in the air saying, okay, this is not enough. We need to do more. When are we going to do more? Uh, we need that now. We can't wait. Um, yeah, talk to that person. Like, how would you encourage them to kind of keep going, um, you know, today uh, in, in, in this polarizing kind of era that we're in, where if you do see a step, you're going to get beat down because that's not enough. <laughs> and, and how do you, yeah, just really, how do you keep going? Yeah, so that's such an important question, right? Self-care this year has been more important than ever. We've just never been in the situation before where, you know, we have a global pandemic, which we haven't even talked about, strangely enough, right. <laughs> over this Right, space. that's great. No, like what? All the things that have happened, all the difficulties that have happened on top of the global pandemic, which was disproportionately impacting Black and Brown people hmm. um, and people in low-income communities, right? So we had these realities that were causing stress and strain on us, in addition to an increased demand for our work, if we're working in talent work, if we're working in diversity, equity, inclusion work. Um, And that demand and that need is coming up against, you know, unique family setups and situations, responsibilities, all of these things, financial realities for folks who maybe um, have lost positions themselves or are living in a household with someone who's lost a position or caring for family members in that way, right? So we've got all these things going on. Um, and self-care has been the thing that we give, but we also have to give community care, right? Um, you know, it has been one thing to say in my home, I take care of my mental health every day and think about what I need and set up my day in order to be able to deliver that. But, you know, we also have to take care of each other in times like this and figure out where do we need to be advocating and make sure our voices are heard for who's getting missed um, in this really difficult time. Um, how can we take care of those who we're in contact with so we get out of these surface only interactions and exchanges and really understand what people need from us to feel supported? You know, um, I have had the most successful year I've ever had in work, but I've also lost 10 people I know this year. 
right? Mm. Um, and I, it's important to be real about that because, you know, six of those people were to COVID. Um, you know, three of them were to other disease and, and loss and age. Um, and one was to suicide. And so when I think about the realities of this year, I think about the need to also understand how we are really doing, right? That need to show up and be successful in work um, was always running right here with grief um, and difficulty and wondering how much to be in my own lane, in my own self-care, but also to look out for those in my community who I love and want to support yeah. um, in ways that, that really matter. So we've learned a lot this year about, about both of those things. I think the most important thing, though, in this work is to say what you need right now. You know, um, like they're saying in real estate, it's a it's a seller's market. Um, right now, it's a talent professional's market. Um, you know, people want to hear from you. They want your expertise. Um, they want DEI guidance. They want recruitment guidance. They want talent strategy guidance. Right. Um, and you can set more parameters than maybe you ever have been able to before and what you actually need to be healthy and well in your space. Um, and I would say, do that, right? Do that. Use, use to your benefit what, is, what you need and make sure that you're elevating that really clearly. Um, I've had to say things that I've been shocked that I needed to say to clients this year in terms of, I need a second to process some of this. And I'm not used to asking for that second. I'm used to being the person who can show up and always do. Um, but I actually need uh, some time away and I'm going to take it. Um, here's what I need in terms of be able to take care of my son who's two and a half years old, right? This is what I need to be able to have space to do that and to hold all the things that I'm holding in this time and grief and responsibility, right? How do we speak up for those things? And how do we take advantage of the fact that um, in this moment we're being heard at levels that maybe have never been seen in the past, right? So those are all the things that I'm thinking about in my work with myself and with others. Yeah. Yeah, no, wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing. Um, maybe uh, last last question. Um, what what things have you seen companies get right? Right. So, like, I think it's easy to talk about. You know, companies companies are just easy targets, right? Nowadays, uh, with respect to um, you know lack of um, you know structure, policies, practices. Um, culture um, and getting, you know, DE&I work right. But yeah, if, if you could, yeah, talk to us about what, what some companies are doing right. Yeah. So, I mean, one of the things, and this is not self-serving just because I'm an executive coach, but one of the things that I have seen is that leaders getting coaching can be transformational. What do I mean by that? I mean that we have not allowed leaders a safe space to process what they don't know with a, a judgmental objective party. Um, and to be able to get strategies and to admit where they need to develop in order to get stronger at serving their organizations in this area that feels new to them, right? So I've seen organizations really investing in coaching and I think it's smart, right? I think that one-on-one -on -one space for your most senior leaders, for your leadership team um, is, is critically important. In addition to that, space for the leadership team and resources for the leadership team to process and learn the skill set that it's going to take to make long-term change I've seen organizations investing in that, um, investing in that shared learning and beyond the traditional, uh, let's only talk about unconscious bias and microaggressions, but people are really going deeper into looking at their organizational data and trying to understand what it is that's causing this and what real shifts would look like. And for the first time in my history of doing talent work in my 10 years of nonprofit management, um, I have seen people not recoiling at that point where the real work 
either has a, a heavy price tag or a heavy workload associated with it, right? They're staying in the hot water, right? In this hot water where we're making decisions about what can be different, we're seeing, okay, this is a big investment and we're prepared to actually make the investment. So yeah. uh, pots of resources are getting bigger. Um, but on a simpler level, I think one of the most important things and one of the most impactful things I've seen is when organizations are actually making time for truth and reconciliation before they're moving to action, right? We have a very strong action bias um, in our work world um, where we realize there's a problem, we get challenging feedback. So here's our action plan and the things that we're going to check off to do quickly to address this and sweep it under the rug, right? I see organizations who are doing this right, doing it differently and saying, I wanna first, before we talk about action, acknowledge that we've caused harm through what we have done before, right? That we had blind spots, that we had areas where we turned the other cheek or didn't work hard enough or didn't prioritize the right things. We have learned from those, those errors in our judgment and those missteps on our part. Uh, we are committed to showing not only that we can create a really lovely action plan and start taking really strong action steps, but that we have heard you and that we don't want that to be your experience. And we apologize for the experiences that we've caused we understand why and how we've caused them. We understand why and how they have been harmful. And we intend to be a better organization in the future through these real actions to shift how we operate at our core. Um, and this is the, the checks and the biases that we, that we are aware of that we are going to put checks in place for to mitigate bias in each step of our process, right? We know we have bias. That to me is the powerful statement. We know that we haven't been perfect. We know that we have made some big mistakes. We know that those mistakes will keep happening if we don't put checks and safeguards in place. We are gonna put those safeguards in place. We are gonna invest in this. We are gonna require this of our leaders and we are going to hold them accountable to it, right? So how do we get past lip service to action? It actually has to become necessary that you get really good at diversity, equity, and inclusion in your practices to stay here. You can't be a great, there's no more hard and soft skills. That's when I, I'm probably dating myself when I say that, but like when you first came into the workforce, um, you know, there was like, oh, this person is great at the hard skills, but the soft skills of management, they really struggle with, right? Their team's having a hard time or whatever. It doesn't exist anymore, that dichotomy. There is management that is inclusive and empowering, or you can't manage here. So if you can think about those things, um, as a possible future, I get excited when I think about that future of this being just the definition of management, wow. where it doesn't have to be if you want to increase the diversity on your staff, but this is the way we manage people. Um, and this is the way we think about management. So I think that's where I see organizations getting it the most right, where they can honor that harm has been caused in the past and that they understand what practices have caused it. And they are changing those practices with real action. Mm, 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 mm. Man, you just gave us a masterclass in like five minutes on how to take these steps to get this right. Um, and, and I love that. And you don't, we just don't hear that, you know what I mean? Like, like um, often, actually, I've never really heard in, particularly in the corporate space, it, it sounds like just kind of, people want reconciliation without a sense of repentance, mm -hmm. right? And like how, wait, how can, how can these two agree unless one who has been doing the wrong had admitted that wrong? You can, right. How and can you like make any right? Apology, right? In any apology, I learned that you know that now that I'm upset, that you yeah. shouldn't do that again. But what I don't know that you've learned 
is that the whole way that you approach problems with me is problematic, right? Mm. <laughs> I don't know that you've learned the big lesson. And if you don't tell me you've learned the big lesson, then I'm going to assume you've only learned the small lesson, which is that specific thing that I got mad about. Don't do it again. Right. Yeah. So organizations and leaders have to show they've learned the big lesson, which is that there is systemic bias and racism and how they do their work. And they can dismantle that and they see their power and their complicity and where things have been. And they are prepared to operate differently with that knowledge. Now, mm. hearing that is a whole different thing than when we made you upset last week with our social media post, you know, or our, our public statement or our email to the staff or our action as it related to X, right? Um, we won't do that anymore, right? What is the broader and most important lesson? Mm. And if we can understand that, we can start to see real change happening with leaders because that statement and that truth and reconciliation opens up a mutuality of feedback lane that is safe, right? Yeah. If you can tell me you know where you've made a mistake, then I can tell you where you're continuing to make it, right? I can tell you that because you've acknowledged this and brought it into the space. But if you're closed off to that, then my fear is if I bring to you this mistake you continue to make, that I'm going to face retaliation and loss because of that, because you don't understand the implications of what you're talking about, right? So how do you create that, that lane and that openness? You honor what you actually see as the problem and you do some learning so that you can make sure to, to honor that well. Mm. Wow, Ty, we can, we can go on and on. We, um, yeah, we so much, we're so thankful. We really appreciate you. Thankful for all the work um, that you're doing in this space. And thank you really for joining us here at Recruit for the Culture uh, and having these true and honest conversations that we really need to hear, right? And so um, before we let you go, um, how can people and companies who are interested in learning more about, about you and your work, how can they connect with you, right? Where, where can they find you? Of course, so I'm on LinkedIn. That's where most people connect with me at Ty Dixon Darden. Uh, I'm on Instagram at Liberatory Leadership. And I am on Facebook at Ty D Coaching and Consulting Inc. So I hope people will find me at any of those three places. All right, cool, cool. And we'll definitely uh, have those links in the show notes uh, coming soon. So again, getting ready to sign off. Ty, thank you so much. Um, hope you all have a wonderful day. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you. It's been so fun to join you.